Hello everybody and welcome to the first episode of Never Have I Ever. This week our episode is Never Have I Ever Had a Homeless Man Walk Into My Apartment, Another Homeless Man Validate My Sexuality, and this really special, amazing story about a homeless woman who came into Todd's life. And speaking of Todd, he is a fabulous director of the Hospitality House for Northwest North Carolina, and we are so happy to have you on the show today, Todd. Thank you, Ariella, for having me. I'm always happy to talk about homelessness um, as it relates to our seven rural counties here in the high country. Yes. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do at the Hospitality House? So I'm the Chief Development Director at Hospitality House of Northwest North Carolina. We cover a seven-county region from Yancey County up to Allegheny and down to Wilkes. Uh, We have one of the highest percentages of unsheltered homeless families in rural America. Mm -hmm. I've been there for 10 years now as, uh, like I said, the chief development officer and I'm glad to be here. Yes. And I guess since you've been here for so long, I would love if you could kick us off with the story that I (laughs) alluded to earlier, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) So early on about 2012, uh, I had started in 2011, early on, my everything I thought I knew and the things that I had been conditioned to know were really um, put to the test and changed for the better. This is my first ever nonprofit gig. I've always worked in the for-profit consumer goods realm of PR and marketing. So coming into this nonprofit job uh, early on, we met a lady, I met a lady named Linda who she was one of our residents living there and um, Linda had multiple um, mental health diagnoses with schizoaffective disorder um, and manic depression but also obsessive compulsive disorder and one day out of the blue the Ralph Lauren outlet at Tanger Outlets um, pulled up and donated 400 pair of chinos I don't know if you've ever seen 400 pair of chinos but that's a (laughs) lot of pants so they dumped them in their conference room, and in a little over an hour, I walked in there, and Linda had those chinos sized by color, gender, labeled. Wow. And I, at that moment, I paused, and I gave thanks for Linda, because that completely changed. Society had labeled her as someone who's mentally ill, I paused and gave gratitude for her gift of obsessive compulsive disorder that we're conditioned to believe certain things about certain people and, and labels and such. And Linda was highly capable and I honored her gift that day. And you know, Linda had been known back when we had a donation closet, Linda like to go in there and organize the donations. The shoes would be rubber banded by, you know, kids, adults, gender, the different clothes, color blocked and everything. But you didn't want to go in there when Linda was in there because she walked around with a long black coat and bright red lipstick. Um, her schizoaffective disorder meant she didn't sleep a lot. But she'd go in that, in that room and start organizing but she didn't really wear anything underneath her coat. <laughs> so you wouldn't really want to go in there. 
because um, she might be stark naked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could see how that could be a little awkward for all parties involved. <laughs> so it's like, no, 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 Linda's in there. Don't go in there. Uh, she liked to try on clothes that she was organizing. So, <laughs> I mean, I can't say I blame her if I had to organize 400 pairs of chinos. I'm sure I would have really tried a couple Absolutely, on yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so interesting how I feel like we both have these stories about how society had stigmatized these amazing individuals who happened to come into our lives, whether it was Linda, which was probably a little long term than the two homeless men I had interactions with. And I have to say, out of everything that's happened to me in my life, those have to be like two of my top stories. And the one that happened first was I was home. I'm bipolar. Like, let me just put that out there. And I have manic tendencies, which is fabulous, which means I like to clean all the time when I have energy to do it. So I was loving that, loving that little kick for me. And I was cleaning in my room and my ex-roommate and her mother had gone out to get groceries. And I heard the door open and no one had said anything. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a little bit strange. So I kept cleaning. And then after I didn't really hear any footsteps no like I guess saying hey like how are you because they're both very like warm people I was like hmm this just doesn't sound right and I can honestly accredit that to childhood trauma because let's be honest you know a footstep when you're six years old so I remember coming around the corner of my room thinking it was probably a neighbor or something and uh, (laughs) the homeless man had come through my door and we were equally as surprised to see each other (laughs) and I remember looking at him and he was looking at me and he stepped into me and I stepped into him and I was like hi can I help you with something and he was like oh I just want to know if you have food and I was like well unfortunately I don't have anything made for you which was true um cooking wasn't really my forte at the time (laughs) so I didn't have anything made but I had offered him um food if he would if he wouldn't mind waiting outside and he said no no like I don't want to bother you and he left and it was funny because when I would tell people about it they made this huge deal they were like that's so unsafe why didn't you call the police on him blah 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 and I was like why would I call the police on an individual who's already been ostracized by society, ostracized by the justice system, and probably would have had a terrible experience with even BPD or Ash County Police Department. I didn't want to put him through that at all. Like, regardless of how he had come into my apartment, I wasn't hurt. He wasn't hurt. It was a very peaceful, de-escalated finish. So that was definitely, I think, fall semester towards the middle. And then towards the end, this this has to be one of my favorites. I was sitting at the bus stop and a man who was homeless came up to me and I took my headphones off because I realized he was talking to me and we ended up having this great conversation like really going to his backstory and like how his wife had died in Boone which is why he would come up once a year every year to put flowers on her grave and I was like oh my god that is so sweet and sentimental and he really like after I just was listening to him an active listener he was opening up about his children and family and it was really funny because at one point he he stopped and he looked at me and I should also disclaimer I was in my mask lesbian phase at that point so like hoodies sweatshirts the chain yeah we all know what it looked like and I remember him stopping and he looked at me and he's like how about you do you want kids and before I could say anything he goes don't worry I don't judge I don't judge my sister's a lesbian <laughs> <laughs> and 
I just died laughing. And I thought it was hilarious. And when I was riding my bus back to campus, I was like, oh my God, this is an individual who has nothing, who has no reason in the world to be kind and compassionate, yet can still find it within himself to do so. And like you were saying, Linda was, I guess, an eye-opening lesson for you. Both of those men, particularly the latter of the two, and particularly after he gave me, I guess, the flowers she's going to put on her grave, that was just such a sweet gesture as a thank you for just sitting and talking to me I was like oh my god like homeless people are people like they're people and that's finally when like my brain made that connection I guess is the best way of putting it but with your experience with a hospitality house like how has your mentality changed I guess your co-workers what is that like homeless people are people that you guys believe in it kind of doesn't translate across the same way in the wild wider world Linda was a start for me of shedding those preconceived notions that we're all conditioned to, that our society tells us what homeless people are because most people never encounter a homeless person. And if they do, they run across the street, divert their eyes, pick up their phone, pretend like they don't notice them. So one of the biggest takeaways for for me and being a leader in this organization is taking that personal transformation and digging deeper into the stories of the folks that need our services. And and through that process, it has informed our policies and how we, how we operate. I mean, 10 years is a long time to be doing anything. <laughs> and five years ago was, was really a mark when we, we systemically changed how we were operating as, as an organization. And um, we, adopted our seven core values and dignity is at the top of that and respect compassion integrity and one of the key ones respect for every person's place and station in life no judgments Um, so we're constantly looking for ways to increase the experience in a dignified way how can we do this more dignified and Honestly, that was one of the challenges with COVID because we had to, with COVID, we had to do things that we never, ever wanted to do. We never wanted to serve someone a meal in the to-go carton and not give them a choice of what they wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. We want them to come through the serving line and choose. I like two helpings of mashed potatoes because I don't really care for Brussels sprouts. They no longer got to choose. We had to erect acrylic barriers between our front desk and our clients to keep people safe because of COVID. We we had to keep our doors locked except for residents and staff. And it it has been a real challenge to keep up with our our values of dignity. And we believe every single human being walking the earth deserves dignity and we're there to to provide that for the homeless individuals and families that need our services. Yeah, and I absolutely loved that you had the seven core values. When I was hearing you talk about that, talking about people with respect, I just kept nodding my head and thinking, this is the attitude I wish was the wider social attitude towards homelessness. And this might be backtracking a little bit, but could you give us some perspective of social attitudes um, related to homelessness? Maybe when it first became a prevalent issue, how you saw that change through the years, and where we are now if we're ahead, behind, or in the exact same place well I will say like this foray into the 
the world of homelessness and, and homeless services was something I never considered. Um, I grew up, you know, uh, middle class, both parents were teachers, lived in the country, um, went to school in Carolina, uh, got a degree in sports medicine, never thought I would be sitting in this chair. Doing this work, I dove in head first. I wanted to understand homelessness. I wanted to understand, you know, my <coughs> my boyfriend at the time I was living in California, I feel like I was led to this job because of him. Um, I moved back to North Carolina after he died by suicide. And he was the guy that volunteered at the shelter in Santa Monica and Venice Beach every other Saturday. And he was the guy that when we were leaving a club in downtown Long Beach, he would walk into 7-Eleven, he would buy every hot dog and every piece of pizza, and we would just walk home handing out food on our way home. So that was my first compassionate interaction and purposeful interaction with the homeless population. And, and then the time we were on our way, um, we attended the Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith's um, spiritual center in um, California, the Agape Spiritual Center. And that's where we went for Sunday, um, quote unquote, church. Um, <laughs> but on our way to brunch, we had to go by the Harley Davidson shop. I said, why we got over there? He said, this guy came back. I met him nine months ago. He's our age. He's a proud man. And when I first met him, he had perfectly good boots on. Now, there are holes in his boots, and that man needs his boots. So we walked in there and bought him a $150 pair of Harley-Davidson motorcycle boots. Wow. So after, after, Bill, um, after Bill's death... And a rough year, it really was really some sort of divine. I feel like he really led me here to this work. And I came into that with being that informed. And I've just continued that as understanding, well, how long has homelessness been in America? What did homelessness look like? And people would scoff at me when I would say, well, we can end homelessness. It's like, no, you can't. No, you can't. Well, we've not always had a homeless epidemic in America. Mm-hmm. Um, the homeless epidemic as we know now. So after the Great Depression, in those middle years, up until the 70s, we didn't have a homeless epidemic. We didn't even have a hunger epidemic. We got those things solved in the Great Depression. But thanks to two tragic events, one being the Vietnam War and the other one being Ronald Reagan, who decided <laughs> to shutter all um, federal mental health facilities and defunded everything so homelessness used to look like i mean you, you can look at any agency across the nation there are very few that are older than 40 to 45 years because mm-hmm. it all started around the same time and that was people men started showing up for vietnam war with all these um all this trauma that we hadn't we just said oh you need to get a job mm-hmm. you just need to get a job and quit drinking so homelessness used to look like old, dirty, alcoholic men, and I'm using air quotes there, um, and crazy women. That's that's what they called it. Um, but it was primarily men coming back from Vietnam War. And we as a society thought, well, we just need to get them a shelter and give them a place to sleep and give them something to eat. We're so far beyond that now, in a good way. 
I'm really glad to hear that and from the little I've studied the Vietnam War in past classes and I think when we met the other day to talk about some talking points we brushed on shell shock and how PTSD wasn't even really recognized as an issue at that point it was just like you're saying angry men and drinking was the only thing that could I guess satiate that urge of just violence within <coughs> them because you were getting triggered from everything all the time like I couldn't imagine being a soldier in the Vietnam War and moving to New York City hearing the cars backfiring people screaming all the time that would just be so overwhelming but like you said we've taken a lot of steps since then so what does homelessness look like look like now well and i also want to say it was the first time chemical warfare was used and so there were all these things happening to the brain and the body it was different than what happened in world war one and world war two it was just completely different and only now are we catching up to starting to to study trauma and understand what trauma looks like um, homelessness now is a lot of families. Like I mentioned before, we have one of the highest rates of unsheltered homeless families in rural America. Um, a lot of 18 to 24 year olds. We have a lot of a lot of homeless individuals who are your age that have aged out of foster care, and we have a lot of elderly folks that sadly become homeless when their kids have been stealing their social security money and like one lady was she had been locked in a shed and her her kids were stealing her social security check and some one other lady got fed up and said you're not taking my check anymore so her daughter kicked her out and brought her to us so it, it looks it looks like america it's every age, it's every race. Of course, it's disproportionately affects black and brown folks because of lack of resources. Um, but it's, it's America. Mm-hmm. And for people who, who don't think that we have a homeless crisis in America, we do. Um, it's gotten worse because of COVID. Hunger has skyrocketed. So it is a real battle. And I was very encouraged. This is the first time in my lifetime I've ever heard a president talk about poverty and homelessness, say those actual words. And I'm a political junkie. I've been watching (laughs) debates, and I was a little kid, and I campaigned for Jimmy Carter. Um, (laughs) So I've been doing this stuff a long time. And um, to hear there's a spotlight on this now, and I guess that's kind of the the, – the flip side of the good of COVID, like people are starting to pay attention that homelessness looks like America. Homelessness is America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know from my sociology classes, that's actually my minor in social inequalities. We were talking about that growing divide between the middle class and not just the upper middle class, but honestly the upper middle class and the 1% too. And when you go into lower income um, areas with people who have other barriers like race, gender, sexuality, gender expression, how they're also disproportionately affected. But part of the problem is the only jobs that are offered to those communities are usually low wage Um, like fast food jobs that'll keep you in for 12 hours of very little mobility up through the company. So I find that really interesting when you said homelessness reflects America because when I think about America, I just think about these huge gaps between everyone's life experience until you're brought together and 
discuss it, which I think we're as a society, we've been having more open conversations. So that's been nice to see. But I definitely think we need to be a little bit more proactive than just acknowledging some of the issues. But um, I guess before we get to political reform, what is the biggest difference between urban homelessness and rural homelessness? Or is there a difference? There is definitely a difference between urban and rural homelessness because I want everyone listening to this to think about when I'm talking to a group, I say, okay, everyone shut your eyes. And when I say this word, I want you to tell me what the first thing that pops into your head is. Homeless. And I want you to think about that. It probably wasn't a guy living in a barn. It probably wasn't a child sleeping in the backseat of a car. Um, it probably wasn't a family camping out by the river. These are all actual examples. Um, it probably wasn't the elderly woman locked in the shed. Um, homelessness here is hidden. So unless you're looking for it, you're not going to see it. And that's what makes it so tough, particularly in our Northwest North Carolina region. People think, oh, we don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. But they think, oh my gosh, Charlotte has a problem because they see, they think it's urban because they see it on, you know, Law and Order SVU and they see it on all the shows. And every time homelessness is depicted, it's a bag lady or a bag woman, quote unquote, pushing a cart down a city street. Mm -hmm. Does not look like that here at all. So that makes the challenge that much more difficult for us. Our seven county region served by Hospitality House of Northwest North Carolina is 2,500 square miles. That is larger. If you were to stretch the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine, that's more square miles than that. That's huge. So think about all the places. Think about that abandoned house down the street. Think about that that barn. Mm -hmm. Think about how many vacant barns we have because farming has, has, you know, been upended by... Corporate agriculture, don't get me started on that. But, um, <laughs> I was about to say, we can have all another episode on that one. We'll just have the. But that's where people series. live, especially if it's by a running water, a stream, or a creek, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we have a street outreach program. They call it street outreach, but it's really mountain and hills and, and under bridges. And, and especially this time of year now that things are starting to spring back up. You really don't see it. Yeah. Um, so you talked about urban homelessness, rural homelessness. What role do you think the media plays in that? Because I, thinking critically about it, it shapes so many of our perceptions towards different groups in society. So what is your perspective on that? And I guess if you wanted to change any issues, what would those changes look like to you? Well, regarding the media, I mean, there there are so few, you know, stories or or television shows that are centered in rural America anyway. And if they are, it's, you know, quackery like Duck Dynasty. So <laughs> they're not going to um, focus on the issues, you know. I, I'm a love law and order SVU, but I know it's filmed in New York, so they're going to depict homelessness as like it is. But it's up to us to understand what's going on in our own backyard. And there's been some really great pieces done. I mean, we've hosted NPR, we've hosted Lisa Ling here um, to do stories about rural homelessness when she was doing her show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Mm -hmm. So 
we're trying to push that narrative and, and with the funding that we get coming from the state and federal offices, which are also in cities, we're constantly telling those stories of, you don't know what it looks like because you've not been here. Mm-hmm. Early on, it was people saying, well, you can't do it this way. I'm like, well, yes, we can because this is rural homelessness. It's completely different than than urban homelessness. So getting people to see that and, you know, I had a, a very wise youth pastor come to me early on and, and he said, I am done doing mission trips to inner city Atlanta to help black children so my white children can feel good about themselves. I need them to know that poverty exists right here and homelessness exists right here. So he used to do not a lock in, as they say, he did a lock out. And he gave kids cardboard and tape and they had to make a place to sleep. Wow. All night. And then they had to get up at 5 a.m. and come cook breakfast at a hospitality house, but they weren't allowed to eat it. Wow. I really wish I had been immersed in, I'd been immersed like that as a kid. That must have been such a transformative experience for everyone in it. And, I mean, think about cooking bacon, but then not being able to eat it. He said, I want these kids hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I want them to know that this goes on in Watauga County. This goes on here in the mountains of North Carolina. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like a lot of what I'm, the undertones is like it's hidden. It's really hidden in rural areas. And I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, which huge, very spread out city. But when we go downtown, that's where I saw a lot of urban poverty. And as a kid, as honestly, until I came to Boone, that is where I thought poverty was. I figured small towns were just like maybe a little dilapidated small towns because they were pushed off of the country roads, pushed off of the main highway. And I got to Boone in the fall. All, freshman year is like oblivious as I think most 18 year olds are to everything but sophomore year came around and aside from all of these like people coming into my life who were homeless I just started to wake up and look around me and I was like oh my god it's everywhere this is something that's just as prevalent and as an issue here as it is as where I'm from and for some reason when I made that connection in my head everything started clicking and I was like I should not be thinking of these two groups of people any differently from each other because at the end of the day they're struggling with the same issue of homelessness so I just remembered that being a very powerful moment and I guess self-realization for me well and people forget that even once you move out of homelessness you're still in poverty and people are shocked when I tell them that Watauga County has the third highest rate of poverty in the state of North Carolina they don't believe me um I'm anxiously waiting to dive into the new census data so I can <laughs> see where we're at in 2020 versus uh, 2010 and and the different American surveys to kind of gauge where we are with poverty. But it's, it's a real thing, and we need people to understand it, to have those hard conversations. Um, and I often tell people... When they say, what can I do? What can I do? The first thing I say is, the next time you see a homeless person, I want you to look them in the eye and acknowledge their humanity. And they look at me like, I thought you were going to tell me to come volunteer. I'm like, nope, right now, I want you to 
consciously choose to not cross the street. I want you to not pick up your cell phone. I want you to not look away. I want you to look that person in the eye. Speak if you want to. Not saying you have to. Nod and acknowledge humanity. The homeless population goes through life invisible because we make them invisible. Because we don't want to see them. Because if we think, oh my gosh, Otago has a homeless problem, that means I'm doing something wrong. And we want to think of this as the perfect place where we come for college football and we come for rafting and we mm-hmm. come to stay in our second home. And, and that's not the reality. Yeah, I guess one point I really wanted to pick up on, well, the first one was when you were talking about looking people in the eye, not picking up your cell phone, that's straight connected to your core values of dignity, respect, honestly, just basic humanity as a whole. But I guess that second part was, let's talk about housing. Let's talk about that (laughs) housing crisis in Boone. Because as for those of you who don't know me, I'm a very broke college student at the moment. So finding a place to rent that's affordable is already difficult for me. But yeah, can you go a little bit into secondary housing um, in Boone and Blowing Rock? So... When people say, what's the biggest hurdle you you face in getting people housed? Um, On the individual level, it's always trust. If if an individual, if they have substance use disorders, if they have mental health, if they don't have a job, all those things are secondary to trust. So we spend a lot of time, we're in the business of building trust with people so that they will let us help them. And then what's the biggest barrier to us actually getting them housed is affordable housing. And now I know there's an affordable housing crisis all across the nation. However, in our area, it's particularly egregious Mm -hmm. that the average county in America has a second homeowner rate of between three and 4%, meaning this is not someone's primary place of residence, it's a second home, it's a place that they might Airbnb, um, but it's not their primary place of residence. Watauga County's rate of second home ownership is 22%. Wow. So there, 22% of the homes in this county sit vacant most of the year. So we have success in moving people into Wilkes County, even to Avery County, and into Mountain City, Tennessee. Sadly, Ash County is getting about the same way. And what people don't realize about our housing programs, um, Hospitality is not really a, a shelter. We only have one shelter program. We have eight housing programs. And one of those is a scattered site housing program where we, we will lease properties from homeowners and we will put families and individuals in those apartments or homes or townhomes or duplexes and then we provide them case management for as long as they need it. And some people, that's the rest of their life. So we have 16 other properties in addition to our primary property at Brook Hollow Road. And it's all about getting people housed. And if we don't address this as a community, 
we're going to run out of places to put people. Yes, and um, I'm actually an econ major. Wow, look at that. My degrees are coming in handy today. Uh, as an econ major, so one of the things we definitely push is, or we talk about, is secondary homes and how they inflate the housing prices in the market. And one day, like you're saying, a professor could have gone out, maybe bought like you know, nice middle-sized home for a middle-class family, and now I feel like it's equally as hard for working professionals making decent salaries to find residents like within that boon um, within that boon area within that blowing rock area just because the prices are so overinflated and when you're a realtor from a business perspective the people selling these properties don't want the value to go down the more you the higher um, I guess the higher the prices the more commission you're going to make but as you're saying that upsets me because a I'm like that's playing dirty with money like that's just dirty and I'm gonna call you out on it so for all the realtors who cop on this I'm calling you out for that but it's just dirty and it irritates me because it's like we have a population who could be contributing to literally the monetary system of this entire town 12 months a year versus rich people who come in for maybe one to two months total and then they're gone again when it starts snow like when it starts snowing if they want to be snowbirds and come to florida or whatever but that just really irritates me as well to see that and to see that pattern not only in Watauga where it's definitely incredibly obvious but other places like my mom is Jamaican so I see it in Jamaica my dad's from Detroit I see it in Detroit mm -hmm. and it really is one of those societal problems that you you just can't escape wherever you go I mean you could put me in that category I mean I just moved to Boone in November I've been living in Ashe County and I, I couldn't afford I can't afford to buy a house in Boone and I I mean I don't make a great living working at a nonprofit, but I, I sustain myself. But as a single working professional, um, one income household, I can't afford to live in Boone. I finally found an apartment I could afford. Um, and it took me seven months to find an apartment I can afford. And thanks to a friend, I was able to find one because I had to move from Ashe County to um, Boone because of work. I mean, I was 12 hour days with COVID it was just, the commute was, was literally killing me. So, yeah. um, but I, I understand it on, on both ends for our clients and for myself. Uh, yeah, I feel like problems, I don't want to say become more real when you're faced with them, but the magnitude definitely starts to sit with you. Um, well, just... let's face it. As Americans, we only really care about something when it affects us. I mean, I don't mean to be, you know, Debbie Downer, but that's the reality of it. I mean, we can see that with COVID. So many people are like, I'm not getting the shot. I'm not getting that. I'm not, I'm not wearing a mask until somebody in their family gets it and dies and suddenly they care about it. Mm -hmm. um, we, there are so many great things about this country and, um, but we're selfish people. We're self-absorbed people. Um, and I know that what we do at Hospitality House, we're, we're on the load le road less traveled. <laughs> yeah. But that is, that is our covenant. That's our mission. That's, that's what we are dedicated to doing. And in terms of taking that mission and applying it to public policy, what are some policy changes uh, even if it's just one or two or an idea that you, oh, oh, he, you're ready, you're ready. <laughs> the knee, the hands just got crossed over the knees. You know it's real. <laughs> Please, I would love to hear it. Well, we're never going to do anything to help folks escape poverty until we raise the minimum wage. 
Um, people will say all the time that, oh, if homeless people just got a job. No. How many jobs do you know, number one, that are 40 hours a week that will pay you benefits? Number two, they pay you a minimum of $15 an hour. Um, there's not a single county in America where someone working a minimum wage job at full time can afford rent. Doesn't exist. Um, and with our cost of living being so inflated here, the, the median household income uh, has to be around $61,000 a year for someone that's considered a living wage. Do you know that a single mom with two kids in Wintaw County needs to make nearly $30 an hour to achieve median household income, and to achieve the living wage, sorry, not the median household, but the, to achieve the living wage here. Um, so we all have to come together. We have to start with, yes, we're going to pay a living wage. And yes, we're committed to building affordable housing units. Those are the two biggest barriers. And until there's some government incentive for contractors to build affordable homes, until there is legislation on the local or state level to demand that each new housing complex, a beautiful one has just get, got approved in Chapel Carbro. Gorgeous, I saw the plans, so excited. It took them four years to get there, but I'm ready to make it happen here. <laughs> I mean, this is what we need to have happen. And we need to come at it through the lens of of dignity and and compassion and the fact that people deserve a place to live, a safe, singular place that they can call home. Housing should not, housing is should be a human right. It should not be a lottery. <laughs> I yes and like you're saying whenever I hear people kind of bitching and moaning about how they have homeless people over the road tent cities I'm like wow why don't you actually take action instead of use your acknowledgement to just I don't know further promote that toxic stigma we have around uh, people who are homeless but guys I think we've got to wrap up our interview soon I don't want to keep anybody longer but Todd thank you so so much for coming on the show today it was great to have the chief development director at the hospitality house of northwest North Carolina meet with me I really feel flattered and honored well I'm glad to be the first um, inaugural guest on your podcast I'll be listening to see what never have I ever done comes up in the future Um, but I'm always happy to talk about this and always happy to hopefully get people inspired to actually do something to create real change. Yeah, thank you. That's really what I'm trying to use this podcast for. So I love that someone on the show is as driven as I am. But guys, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, if you're if you can answer this question, never have I ever looked a homeless person in the eye when I walked past them on the street and your answer is yes, I want you to go out and I want you to change that and then I want you to think about it, sit with it and tell me how it makes you feel. And again, like you said earlier, Todd, I really think that is where we can really get our start. All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of Never Have I Ever. Again, a big thank you to Todd Carter from the Hospitality House for sitting down with me and letting me interview him today. 
especially considering I am a podcaster with little to no credentials at the present moment. So thank you again, Todd. And for all of you listeners out there, please head to the Hospitality House's website to see how you can get involved and help resolve homelessness in your respective area. So thanks again to all my listeners. Thanks again to Todd. And for those of you interested in hearing more crazy stories and the crazier explanations behind them, please give me a follow on Spotify at Never Have I Ever by Ariella Allen. And for those of you who are looking to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at a squared Allen zero one. Again, a squared a s q u a r e d a l l e n zero one. Thanks again, guys, and I hope to see you guys tuning in next week.